Welcome to Witch, the women in technology creative industries hub, elevating the voices of women in tech. My name is Bishi, the founder of Witch. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a woman in tech about her work, journey, life, and process. In this week's episode, I'll be talking to artist, thinker, and grand dam of cyborg shamanism, Ada Paris. Please do like, review and subscribe. We're a new podcast and every bit of support helps. Hello, Ada Paris, and welcome to Creative Women in Tech. How are you going in lockdown three? Oh, hi, Bishy. Hello, everybody. Um, It's lovely to be here. How am I doing in lockdown three? It's a it's a journey, right? Yeah. It's a journey, and I suppose I'm I'm actually more an introvert than an extrovert, so I'm doing tend to do okay. But we've also got to remember that there's a cumulative effect that's happening with people of this being the third one. Yeah. So looking at you know self care and nurturing and doing more of the things that make us who we are. So yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely, and. There are so many extraordinary things that you do as an artist and as a thinker and as a practitioner. So tell me, how would you define your practice? Oof. <laughs> that is the question. Oh my gosh, we start the podcast and you get the laugh straight away. Um, <laughs> wow. How would I describe it? I suppose I am increasingly so try and keep stay away from labels because they bring a perception that is based on the person, the other person's experience of what that means. Um, So I suppose my practice is a multi-sensory systems thinker, pattern recognizer, storyteller, you know, those sorts of things. Because, you know, as humans, we don't interact with just one sense or just two senses. Everything we do is multisensory. And I think that we tend to forget that. And then what I do is I see technology as a tool. And what that means is that we, we tend to use some form of technology as a means of uh, gaining some sense of enlightenment or to achieve something. And so my practice is about recognizing that technology is not just digital. It can be, at the moment I'm working on a soundscape um, which uses a cave, the idea of a cave as a form of technology for immersion. So yeah, multi-sensory, transdisciplinary storyteller is probably the the closest. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And um, obviously, because I've done all of my research, <laughs> I sort of know certain elements. But um, how I wanted to ask you, how did you start that journey into technology? Because it comes from a really interesting standpoint. Yeah. Um, so I suppose I've always been into tech, really. 
I've well, I've always been into yes, the way that I define technology as tools, and that, that it's not just digital. So I've always been into technology. I've always been into tinkering and understanding how we can use other things to gain knowledge and wisdom and that. But so as a child, you know, I suppose loves loved um, sci-fi and Star Trek and those kind of things and was fascinated by those types of technology and wanted to be an astronaut. But if we're talking about career-wise, at university I was studying um, initially to be a primary school teacher and then, but also doing math, pure and applied maths and educational studies and from there work led into various kind of avenues of education, learning, design, um, advertising. And actually, in many ways, it was a happy mistake. Well, not mistake. I'm trying not to use that word. It was a, um, it was following a path that I didn't realise actually would lead me there. So I got recruited or approached rather to help build the community and the programme, the accelerator programme for WIRA which is uh, Telefonica's Technology Accelerator Program. And I was brought in to build the community and to build the mental network, uh, sorry, to build the program. But my way of doing it was I had to really understand the tech first and understand the, the startups and what they were trying to do. And the more I read their business plans and started speaking with the founders and the teams and really understanding it, my approach then was looking at it as well, how are these technologies going to impact our sense of identity, our cultures, the way that we, the impact we have in the world and how we build ecosystems. And so it was just my natural curiosity that kind of moved that role from purely building the community and managing the community into understanding the tech. And then from there, eventually being given the title of a futurist, which I didn't know what it was in the beginning, because again, it's another label. And people tend to think that it's, um, well, for a lot of people, futurism tends to be about predicting the future. And I say that I don't have a crystal ball. That's not what I do. What, what I do is I look at patterns and look for the ripples of how these technologies can help us shape the way that we tell stories. And could you talk about how did Burning Man affect your ideas of community building online? Because that's something that I picked up yeah. during my research. So I found out about Burning Man years ago. And at, at the time, none of my friends wanted to go. And so ended up, again, happy circumstances, but ended up going to Burning Man. And I suppose there's, it has 10 core principles radical self-expression, civic responsibility, participation, and everybody who goes is supposed to really embody and live those principles. And so going out there from London, you know, young black woman at the time, go, you know, it was, I remember as I was leaving, and it's interesting that I go there first, as I was leaving that first time, I remember just sitting in the car with my friend and just writing this blog post about the fact that it's the first time that I can remember being in a space where people are authentically themselves. They're unapologetically themselves and they express themselves in whatever way feels right for them, but it's also safe for other people because that's an important aspect of it. And I just 
fell in love with that that whole concept that people can be themselves and you can still build a community and a city and be functioning. And so it was initially I came back from Burning Man and decided that I wanted to take those 10 core principles and embody them and not have them just on the plier. But over a period of years, I realized that, yes, those are great principles, but I need my own. And what are my own values and my principles and recognizing that the values that I have for how I choose who, who I'm friends with and nurture and relationships and all of that, they're the same principles I should be using for building communities and who I choose to work with and the type of work I do. And so that's where it really came from is recognizing that you can be authentically yourself, unapologetically yourself. You can be different. That whole concept of diversity is true out there. You see it. And so you can still build a functioning type of city, community, culture with all of those things. And so in a a lot of ways, it was proof or it was an insight into how diversity can really work. Yeah. And what's a memorable project that you've worked on where you were able to implement some of these ideas back into like a technology space? Probably the one I'm doing now, actually. Right. Yeah. Um, And I'm really excited by it because it's pushing my boundaries and I have to learn how how to use new technologies. So I'm currently um, an artist in the Buckminster Fuller Institute. They've got a design science studio. Um, There's 144 of us artists from around the world. And the, the premise is that we how do we use technology and art to reconnect us with 100% of life? So it's around climate, you know, ecosystem sustainability. I'm also in, they're doing a partnership with the University of California, Irvine. And so I'm also a research fellow there. And so I'm combining those two projects. And my project initially was called um, the Ecological Triptych. So the link between colonialism, capitalism and climate change is the ego. In the global north, it's the ego. And I wanted to create an experience that could scale that would help people embody that realization and embody understanding how their ego impacts their relationship with our whole relationship with climate change. So what I've done is there is... um, Many indigenous cultures use caves as a form of gaining enlightenment, or I refer to it as a form of technology, that it's helping them to go into the cave, to retreat, to meditate, that isolation. And so what I'm doing is I'm creating a soundscape, which is a virtual cave that takes you on that shamanic journey of understanding your really, first of all, having breakthrough and then getting that sense of clarity. Um, so the first version of it is a soundscape and the bigger version that I'm working on is a VR experience, but it will be social VR. So people will go through this experience together. They will interact as part of that whole thing. So you're building a sense of community for the people, the participants who go through the experience. And I'm also thinking about what happens after that experience. How do you maintain that sense of community that sense of shared experience that they've gone through, this, this, that sense of togetherness, of kinship, 
that they have gone through as part of this experience. That's extraordinary. And when will this be ready for the public to be invo- get involved? So um, timing is wonderful. So this Saturday, there is, um, as part of the Design Science Studio, we are doing an artist showcase and there will be a three-minute teaser for it. But our uh, our graduation, our end of show for the programme is at the end of March. And so by the end of March, there will be a full, the plan is there will be a full audio soundscape. And I've already started to um, get, build a team together with my co-founder, Marcus, my business partner, um, Marcus. So we together are working on the big VR experience. I don't have a deadline for that, that one yet. Really extraordinary. Yeah, I just performed in VR for an Amazon music session in November and it was so extraordinary. We had about five different computer systems all talking to each other. Oh, wow. But it just, I don't know, it, it, like, it was a push for the both of us, but the fact that we pulled it off, like, like actually live streamed onto Amazon was it was a really unforgettable. It was one of the biggest moments that I experienced last year. So I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of all of that stuff. Um, Can I just say, I, so yeah. I had with the VR thing, you know, and you were asking about community. So yeah. for a long time, I, not that I was anti VR. It's just, that I felt that it was a very solitary individual kind of um, experience. And so deliberately, what I'm looking at is how to build this social VR experience. So people will go through it on their own. You know, they've got the headset, they're going through it, but they're also part of a bigger collective of people who are going through it together. And so creating, using tones and sounds and all sorts of, you know, neuroscience to look at how you build that sense of togetherness or kinship whilst having a VR experience. Yeah. That's that's brilliant. The first time I went to a VR exhibition that's really memorable was probably the Bjork VR exhibition. Oh, yes. Which was amazing. But it was very, the way it was like groups of 16, everybody roped off and being moved around in a certain, um, you know, like in a certain pattern, which understanding things like health and safety and the nature of the space it was in, I can understand. But it did feel like you were like a bit on a school trip. The, yeah. whole thing. the one I really enjoyed is was the um, marshmallow laser feast. The we are an ocean of I've forgotten what is the full name, but it was the one they did at the serpent. I think it was the serpentine. Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Oh, was it serpentine? I can't remember. But the yeah. one, the one that they did was beautiful because. Yes, you had your headset on, you had your haptics on, but you could still interact with others, which made it quite different. So you had the whole experience and then you would see somebody and you were able to kind of reach out and see, you know. So I think that's what is slowly changing my mind around the use of VR. Right. Great. Well, I definitely must do my research on it. So I just want to slightly shift away from that to yep. the blog post that you wrote. I said that in, in my question, I was like, your recent blog post. And then I just Googled <laughs> it. It's like, it wasn't recent. It was May, which, which is well, recent-ish. I mean, 
I'm but given, <laughs> given to what 2020 was like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, you could say recent. When you say to somebody, oh, I did something last year, they kind of say, do you mean 2019 or 2020? Did yeah. you actually do something in 2020? <laughs> very, very good point. But this was a medium post um, on coronavirus and being human. Yeah. Um, could you expand a little bit upon what you wrote and what the ideas were? Yeah. So um, when the pandemic first hit, it was March last year, and I'm in the um, clinically extremely vulnerable group. So instantly, I, well, I actually I received a phone call from my GP who then told me I needed the shield. And so that was a whole experience of being in, you know, indoors on my own, you know, isolating this whole thing. And I, as somebody who looks for patterns or I recognize patterns, I started to look and see what was happening around the world and the way that various people, communities, cultures were responding. And I noticed that there were three key patterns that started to emerge. And so I just felt compelled to write this piece about the lessons that we can learn from the coronavirus because it's yes it's as devastating as it is there's always something to be learned in these situations and so the first bit was that the virus itself doesn't recognize borders and boundaries we as humans put up so many borders and boundaries and that usually comes under the guise of colonization or colonialism or something, this divide and conquer and separate. And actually, if we recognize that the, the, the virus doesn't recognize borders and the way that we first started to respond back in March and you know that, that time as people broke down those borders that once seemed impossible in order to try and make sure that we survive, in order to try and find cures. You know, there was this cross-border transdisciplinary coming together to try and find, and people giving access to, you know, universities and research organizations giving access to their information that was usually behind the closed wall. So that was the first one. It was, well, it's easier to remove those borders and boundaries that we have been saying are impossible to remove in order, and we can see how that is helping us to um, to move forward and find solutions. The second was that most people initially acted out of fear and the hoarding and the, you know, what's in it for me. And I said that one of my mentors actually said that the way that he looked at this is that we're going through a global earthquake. Everything is shaking and, you know, the ceilings and everything's falling down. And meanwhile, we're in the bathtub hoping that things don't fall on us. And when the dust settles, we look around and that's when we start to think about, okay, so what can I do? How do I start to rebuild things? And what we, but what we noticed at that time as well is that there was this resurgence of the hyperlocal communities of yes, I live in London, but actually in order to survive this, I need to look even closer, even you know more locally. So we had the mutual aids and we had people recognizing each other. And there was this thing of, it doesn't matter your gender, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, what university you went to, those things are not going to help you. At the moment, what was in, in that time, what is going to help you is just recognizing the human in each other and thinking about how can I support that other human to have their most basic needs met. And then the third one was that 
regardless of whether you were extrovert, introvert, whoever you were, at some point you would go through an existential crisis. And I think as a, you know, as a species, that's what's been happening, that we got to a point of saying, well, I've based, for many of us, we had based our identities and our ideals on this idea of normal. And the pandemic showed us that that normal didn't really exist anyhow. So you then have this moment of saying, well, shoot, who am I? If that's, if that was what I was using as my moonshot, as that's what I was focusing on and it's gone, how do I now define who I am? How do I now, what do I aim for? So we had this crisis of who am I? What's important to me? What impact do I want to have in the world? And who do I want to have around me? And so that I think is that what I, I believe that's what started to create spaces for some of the work that I'm doing and some of the stuff that you're doing, that more people are receptive because they, you know, I can imagine, you know, with your stuff as well, for years we've been talking to people about these different ways of thinking and seeing and being, and people were risk averse. Yeah. Well, now if that whole normal in, in inverted commas, uh, quotation marks is gone. Yeah then people are more likely now more open to just taking a risk because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Absolutely. I mean, it's been, it's quite odd to talk about when there's, you know, like, you know, a hundred thousand deaths in the UK to go, well, you know, I, in, in full understanding of what's gone on, I've experienced a shift that I've never experienced before in my life and all of a sudden people are talking to me like I have some kind of value and I knew that I've always had love I've always had support but this all of all of a sudden this shift in consciousness for voices who are a bit different but genuinely yes completely new (laughs) yeah And, and and whilst and I'm sure you can appreciate this whilst it is we have that moment of like, finally, yeah. we also have that, well, what took you so long? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of both. And, you know, to your point that, you know, the amount, the number of deaths that we've had, I also do think that these different ways of thinking and being and knowledge and wisdom and everything can potentially help us to find solution, new solutions yeah. to some of the biggest problems that we've had for a long time that have been very based on a particular way of doing and being and thinking and education and all of those things. That's all out, you know, everything is up for grabs now. Yeah. And so people like you and I and some of the your listeners who have been consistently chugging along going, I know there's something in this. I, I just need to keep going. My advice is, yeah, if you really believe in it, believe in your stuff, keep going. Absolutely. Keep going. Sometimes it is just about timing. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't get to choose your time. Your time is your time. And you can't, you can't, and actually like one of the most liberating things that I've learned is, is you can't force people to like what you do. And there's something very liberating in that. Once yep. you accept that, it's really liberating. Yeah. But that said, I we also do need to know when to stop. Very true. <laughs> 
you know, it, it, yes, it's great, you know, like I said, believing in your thing, you know, your thing and going down that road and pushing and sacrificing and all of those things. But it's a bit like an, the internet. At some point, you know, you put in, you go into Google or whatever, you know, search engine and you start looking for something and you, before you know it, you've been on there for four hours and you're looking at cats singing at you. Yeah. You know, I hear you. <laughs> at some point, and you're you're kidding, you're, you know, you're laughing hysterically because you're watching this thing. And you went, "Oh wait, what did I start looking for in the first place?" <laughs> so, so true. At some point, you have to know when to stop, and only you can decide that. But you have to be totally honest with yourself about the the balance of sacrifices versus some. You know, some things, yes, will be tough, but also. You, you can get into this state of flow where things just seem to work. And I believe that life is, you know, it's about waves. And so it's never always going to be completely up there and it's never going, always going to be completely down there. Yeah. But the way, my way of navigating that is to remember that it's temporary. Each of those peaks and troughs are temporary. Absolutely, absolutely. And this brings me on to asking you about what is cyborg shamanism? <laughs> and I wish I could see your face as well because it was just beautiful. It's like, okay, what is this thing? So, um, cy- cyborg sh- shamanism is. I generally say it's this, it's a culmination of seven years of research, but it's not, it's, it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of being and experience and research. And it is a provocation deliberately, you know, I've deliberately chosen those words. So cyborg, because it gets us to think about what does it mean and could it mean to be human and what could we be capable of and shamanism about is about actively going out and finding other ways of knowing other knowledge other wisdom other insights and so when you bring those two worlds together you start to look at especially from a technological perspective they're both about technologies as well so cyborg digital algorithmic you know people talk about the singularity which i actually think more about the singularity in terms of human rather than technology and shamanism plant medicines, sound meditations, all those sorts of things. They're still tools, both of them, both of those worlds use different forms of technology, again, to that point earlier, for, to gain a sense of enlightenment. And so what I have done is I spent a lot of time, years, just looking at patterns and recognizing that these patterns occurred in very various worlds. First, I noticed it in, in the algorith- algorithmic world, then in the shamanic world then started having more conversations and recognized that those patterns, those same patterns occur in quantum mechanics and in spirituality and belief systems and all these things. So created a framework that looked at, it's a storytelling framework. It's an alternative to the hero's journey. It is a way of transforming to create a sense of a state of kinship and citizenship. So there's five phases that correspond to the elements. So ether, air, fire, water, earth. 
or the first phase is leave, how do we leave the old ways behind to create new value systems? The Burning Man experience, what am I experiencing? Breathe, how do we remove tensions in the system to create a, you know, that, that ability to breathe and create a hypothesis for change? So mine was cyborg shamanism. Okay, I've changed my value. I've recognized what my values are. Now I've got this hypothesis, this idea. The third is grow. What are the tools, technologies, and I mean in the wider sense, rituals, behaviors, people outside of my echo chamber, what's the knowledge and system that I can bring together to help try and work on this? Flow is water. How do we make this sustainable? Or the question I tend to ask is what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Because whatever we're building, we should be thinking about future generations. And then the last one is ground or earth. How do we ground this down, make it tangible and create a form of kinship and citizenship? And when you get to that bit, you actually go back to the beginning, the first one to check that those values are still valid for this community, this kinship that you've created. And so that's what it is. The way it manifests in the world, uh, I have been using it as a coaching framework. Um, I've used it to do culture change pieces of work with uh, organizations, with corporates. Um, and I'm now using it to, I've used it to create the soundscape for the myth of the ego. Wonderful. So now I think I've really understood it. Um, not that it was that anything you said in the past from my research was unclear. I think sometimes these things take a little bit of time to solidify. But I, I like what you said about it being an alternative to the hero with a thousand faces, because then immediately it's like, oh yeah, of course. Um, it, is cyborg shamanism something that you've written down formally or is it yes. more just, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's, it, there's, the first medium post I wrote about it is called Escaping Plato's Cave. And that was about, see, you know, seeing the shadows and the walls and actually the, our perception of what is real and what isn't real. So I've written about it there. I did a immersive piece at the Tate um, in November 20, yeah, 2019. I nearly said last year, November 2019, I did an immersive piece at the Tate and there was some stuff there, but I'm, in the process of building a new consultancy with Marcus, my co-founder, and we're looking at how cyborg shamanism becomes a part of that because we, um, there are lots of people, because I've been speaking about it a lot, you know, public talks and what have you, there's a lot of people who recognize themselves and their own journey within that. And so we have a website, which is uh, ism.earth, ism.earth, which is a, almost at the, at the moment, it's a holding space for where we're gathering that community of thinkers and creatives and people and storytellers who want to come together to do something. Yeah, and there's wonderful, well, I'll be linking that into the show notes of this podcast, um, but there was one quote, I was doing some exercises yesterday and it was like, oh my God, I kept writing down quotes from this, from this one interview that was so beautiful. So this isn't really, uh, I haven't formed a question, but okay. I just wrote this down because it was so beautiful. Um, and it was all about technology, our tools for enlightenment and guidance, which is so beautiful. Could you expand a little bit around 
what you were saying or, yeah. or what that means for you. Yeah. So I think really it's, I suppose I'd always really questioned what technology is as a concept, you know, for, for most of my life. If I think about Star Trek and, you know, fascinated by all the sci-fi technology that they had. And then throughout my own life, got into exploring shamanism and spirituality and just really speaking to people who had very different perspectives than I did, you know, came from very different worlds. And the more, and I didn't realize that I was a systems thinker or pattern recognizer before. I just thought that that's the way that everybody's brains work. But I having these conversations and when somebody would say, oh, but, you know, so when somebody would say, oh, well, this technology, this app, this algorithm or this hardware does this, and this is the intention behind it. And I said, yeah, but that's what, you know, ayahuasca or a plant medicine would do. Or actually, if you look in nature, that's what you would see in nature. And so it became recognizing the similarities between the intention of the tools. And that's why I got to the point that actually all technology is just about gaining the sense of enlightenment. It is about how can I use this to understand my relationship with myself, to understand my relationship and interaction with others and understand my relationship and interaction with my environment, which usually comes down to the the planet. And so once I realized that actually we're all trying to do the same thing in very different ways, but the common thread is that we're using something external to us to do that, that's where that came from. Yeah, wonderful. And I heard in another interview, which I loved, is that you see your glasses as a form of technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Completely. And, because if they, yeah. they, without my glasses, I wouldn't be able to see properly. So they are enhancing my, a bit, my capabilities. Yeah. And about, around the, the movement of transhumanism, how many of them are there it like is it a growing movement and who is your favorite transhumanist oh oh, that's a big one because (laughs) and this is see this is the thing as well this isn't about knowing when to stop because I can quite happily throw myself down a rabbit hole of ideas so my first response is what is transhumanism right (laughs) (laughs) what is it yeah Um, love it because if, and I try, I tend to start a lot of these kind of ideas that when they're swimming around in my head by looking at the etymology of the word that's being used and find out the origins of where that came from. And, you know, transhuman to me is using some form of technology or something to augment ourselves, you know, to, and so that could be, hardware, digital technology to augment ourselves. In that case, I'm using these glasses to augment my eyesight, which means that I could, by some definition, be called transhuman, you know, cyborg. Well, based on my definition of technology, that's also what could be happening with shamanism. Using a form of natural technology 
plant medicine, what have you, to augment our abilities, our cap capabilities, what have you. And so it then becomes, and I've had some really interesting conversations around recently around the fact that maybe cyborgs are, uh, cyborgs and shaman are just the same thing. It's just that one is digital and one is natural. And so then when you ask who is my favorite transhuman, it becomes, that's why you can see why I went, wow, that's a big question. Yeah, of course, of course. I don't have a particular, I'll tell you what just popped into my head. Yeah. So rather than naming somebody, my favorite, my not favorite, but the ones I'm curious about are the ones whose names I don't know. I the love ones, that one, the yeah. ones who are doing work out there that is having an impact, but I don't know who they are. It's and that takes me back to the conversation about the coronavirus and the pandemic. Who are the heroes? Who are the key workers? Who are the ones that are keeping things going? The ones that we don't know. And that's what cyborg shamanism is about. What, who are those voices? Where are those voices and knowledge and experience and wisdom and knowledge and everything yeah. that we don't know about that still have a re, who are, that are still valuable and without which we would not be here. So that's my answer. <laughs> I, love I, I love that so much in in uh, uh calcutta is where my family are from so we we do a slightly different version of diwali we do durga puja which is um worshiping the goddess with 10 arms and she and and there's a whole presentation of like her and lakshmi and saraswati and ganesh and they were all like this year, it was the first year that they couldn't have public puja celebrations. So they they made them up all as key workers. So she she had the 10 arms and like the big spear slaying the demon was a huge vac vaccination syringe. Like it was so good. I'm, I'll, I'll send you these. Yes, photos. please. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. No, no, yeah. And then, and then like Ganesh, was an ambulance worker and like you know like they all in in the hindu iconography they have all of these like different instruments and, and tools which define what their powers are but these were all like medically based so it's just so good. <laughs> it was so wonderful i will definitely yes please yes please send you those photos so this is my closing question so I'm guessing, and also I know as an artist, when people are like, what is your favorite this? What is your favorite that? I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm obsessed with something every week. I had just like- oh, every, new... every day. Every day. <laughs> every day. Yeah. Some... But you know, it's, it's funny because I was asked the other day as part of, actually it was in the um, design science studio and they asked us what brings us joy? What motivates us? What is our thing at the moment? And I went, life yeah. went, just life and I, went, yeah. I went oh I'm excited by life by the awesomeness of life that we yeah. have lost that connection with that wonder and awe and I find you know I've got my plants growing here and I noticed the other day that one of my plants that I thought was dying has now started there's a little bud and I was like oh that's amazing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no stuff and, like that 
And I don't have to be a child yeah. to do that. And so that's what I'm also trying to do through my work is bringing that sense of wonder and awe and curiosity and play and all of those things. And I think that yeah. technology can be a tool to yeah. do that. It doesn't have to be just serious. And I don't think that we have to use the technology in the way that it was always intended. Yeah. And so to close this interview, then I would ask, who is a key woman in tech? So instead of favorite or iconic, like who's who's a key woman in tech? Maybe you're, you know, maybe you're sort of researching her, or maybe she's just a friend in your circle of friends or, yeah. Yeah, um, I am blown away by Kamal Sinclair. So she is, I met, I was introduced to her through um, the Guild of Future Architects. And I remember just the first conversation with her. So uh, you know, a lot of her stuff is also around, and it's not just her work, it's her, her ideas and just so inspired. So she was talking about a project that she had done with indigenous elders of introducing them to v a VR experience. And, you know, and I remember her saying to me that when they put the headsets on, they took them off again, they said, oh, so now, now you people have finally caught up with what we've been doing for years, this, this spirituality. But I love her um, process of inquiry and the connections that she makes to, I suppose, because I'm really into at the moment the exploring indigenous cultures and ancestral wisdom and how all of those things come together so she is somebody that I really admire in her approach wonderful well I will definitely be giving her a google in amongst all of the cat memes <laughs> these tiktok reels of these children dancing everywhere <laughs> it's not just children no I know <laughs> yeah right right yeah and people and just the the fantasia yeah no um i i i totally get it ada thank you so much this has been everything and more and i can't wait to see how your work progresses where you take it and i will be keeping my eyes and my senses peeled so thank you thank you so much thank you for having me um i'm looking forward to hearing the final version of this and yeah if anybody wants to keep in touch you can contact me on social media i'm at ada paris a-d-a-h-p-a-r-r-i-s wonderful thank you thank you so much ada paris for being our guest this week and thank you all for tuning in and subscribing thanks to the rattle for all of their technical support on this podcast you can find out more about Witch at Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.com forward slash Witch. You can go to Witch.com to find out news and updates and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.